All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, again, we express our gratitude, our thanks for the privilege of being here, the freedom that we have to come together to freely worship you without fear of any persecution, government interference, or anything of that nature, and that we can proclaim the truth of the gospel of grace, that Christ died for our sins, and that he paid the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life simply by trusting in him, believing that he died for our sins. And, Father, we're thankful that we have your word to tell us about reality, that you define reality because you created reality. You created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And you created history. You are the God who oversees history, and you are working together the events of history to the good. You are working, as Paul says in Romans 8:28, all things together for good. There is a plan, there is a purpose, there is a structure to history, and you have revealed this in your word. And as we study this today, help us to understand these things that we may put together all of the many different stories, episodes, events of Scripture to understand their plan and their purpose as it reaches and as it will reach its future culmination in that great period we refer to as the Millennial Kingdom, the Kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me today to Ephesians chapter 1. We continue our study, and today we're going to begin to look at this phrase that is used in Ephesians 1.10 called the fullness of time the fullness of time, and as this brings together for us an understanding of our purpose. It is important to understand two things, to have a real sense of who we are, who you are as a person, who we are as a people, and that is we need to understand our past, where we came from. We need to have a history. There is a Chinese proverb, proverb that those who do not have a past do not have a future. We need to understand that they're, the two are connected and what is between our past and our future is the present, where we are right now. That God has a, had a plan in the past, working out his purposes in each of the different ages or dispensations, and that he is going to bring all of human history to a conclusion that is described briefly in this passage that will come together at the end of a period uh, that we know is the millennium. It is the messianic rule of Jesus Christ upon the earth. After a thousand years, it will conclude, and then uh, this present heavens and earth will burn up. So we'll begin to look at this today. In John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we have a passage that talks about grace. When I began last week, I pointed out that this whole section from Ephesians 1, 3 down through 14, this one long sentence in the Greek, this this one great uh, praise of God is related to expounding some of the benefits of his grace toward us. We have phrases that talk about the uh, riches or, as it should be translated, probably the wealth 
of God's grace, that he has abounded to us. He's lavished it upon us. He has provided so much for us that there is nothing that we have done to earn or deserve this. In fact, if God gave us what we deserve, it would be eternal punishment. But God treats us all in grace, common grace to all, whether believer or unbeliever, and saving grace and spiritual life grace to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And this is grounded in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the uh, prelude to his gospel, the Apostle John stated of the Lord, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if you read those verses, there are some things that just really don't quite come out very well in an English translation. It appears almost as if there is this dichotomy between the Old Testament as simply a time of law and the New Testament as a time of grace and that in law there was no grace, and in grace there is no law, and there certainly have been people who have abused it that way. But when we look at verse 17 without looking at verse 16, we often may misunderstand the significance of verse 16. 16 is talking about what we receive through the incarnation of Christ, which has been the focal point of the first part of this preface, and of his fullness we have all received. He is, uh, the Apostle Paul is primarily speaking of believers, and he uses this word that's in the lower uh, right-hand corner of the slide, pleroma. Now, pleroma is a fascinating word, and it is a word that is rich with significance in the epistles, and especially in our passage today. A key phrase, one of several key phrases in Ephesians 1.10 is the phrase, the fullness of time. And that word fullness is this same word, it's pleroma, and it has to do with that which is full, that which is complete, and it doesn't always have the same, quite the same nuance every place it is used, so it has to be defined by context. But here it is speaking about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is of his fullness his, he is, we can say, truly human. He is fully God, but he is true humanity, unfallen humanity, uncorrupted humanity, sinless, perfect humanity. He is called by Paul the second Adam. He has everything that Adam had at, at his original creation, untainted, uncorrupted by sin. He is... In another sense, he is the completion of the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament to provide a ruler who will bring in a perfect age, not this pseudo-utopia that is promoted by politicians and Marxists and utopian socialists and others today, but he is the one who is... Uh, who is going to bring in a perfect kingdom because you can only have a perfect kingdom when you have a perfect ruler and perfect environment, and that is established in the, in the millennial kingdom. And it is in that sense that one day he will complete the Father's plan for humanity for redemption, not just redemption of individuals for salvation, but the redemption of of the creation that even now, as Paul says in Romans 8, groans under the curse of sin. And so the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He will establish his kingdom, and he will then there will be a progression of events through that millennial kingdom that will culminate in all things being brought under his authority, and that is the, uh, perp- the, the focus of Ephesians 1.10. So John 1.16 says, and of his fullness we have all received, and then it says grace for grace. I think the preposition for there in English is somewhat, um, uh, somewhat confusing. It is then explained in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
There is, uh, there was grace in the Old Testament. There's grace from the instant that there was a fall and sin. Grace is that which is undeserved merit. So there was no grace before, uh, there was no grace before the fall. And so by allowing the fall in God's permissive will, he is able to display aspects of his love, uh, that which we refer to as mercy and grace, that is his kindness and goodness to undeserving mankind, uh, that he is able in, in throughout human history. And this is displayed in different ways as we progress through history. We'll talk about that as we go forward. This phrase, grace for grace, the preposition there is the Greek preposition anti, which can mean in place of, it can mean instead of, and it can mean have the idea of an exchange. In one sense, it has the idea of equivalence. This is when you give something, for example, um, you, you give one thing for something else, and there's an equivalence between the two things. For example, in Matthew 5, 8, it uses the phrase an eye for an eye. You know, one thing is equivalent to the other thing. That uses the preposition on T there. It also has the idea of exchanging one thing for another. In Luke eleven eleven, a serpent is exchanged for a fish. That's the idea here. It's when you take money and you purchase something, you're exchanging dollars for a product or for service. And that's the idea here is the grace of the Old Testament is being exchanged for the grace of the New Testament. It is an expansion, an enhancement, a development of the grace of the Old Testament. Because as we go through the stages of history, the dispensations, grace is manifested uh, in different ways, and each successive dispensation expands on the revelation of God and the grace of God over previous dispensations. This is connects the idea of progressive revelation to what God is doing through the progress of of history. And so we have to understand this summary here in Ephesians 1, 16 and 17 as we come to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. So what we have seen in the previous verses is a shift from talking about that which was provided by God the Father to that which is provided by Jesus Christ and what we have in him, a phrase relating to our new identity, our new position as believers in Christ, when we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, something that is called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. I try to use that phrase because it's more precise. It's a baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, an identification. That's the sense of baptism. It's not always water baptism. There are eight different baptisms in the, in the New Testament, and only three of them involve uh, the person being baptized getting wet. There were those who were baptized at the time of Noah. They got wet, but they died. So that wasn't a good thing. The others are have the idea of identification with something. And in Romans 6, 3 through 6, Paul talks about the fact that those of us who have believed in Christ are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. We are That identification is accomplished by means of God the Holy Spirit, a unique ministry to this church age. It first occurred on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and that was the beginning of the church. So this uniquely identifies all church-age believers. And once this church age concludes, then there will be this event called the rapture, and all church-age believers who are in Christ all are raptured in the blink of an eye, and we are with the Lord in the air. And believers who come to an understanding of the gospel immediately after that are not going to be identified with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. There's no baptism by the Holy Spirit because they come back under the, the general guidelines of, the, uh, of their position in Israel. We know 144,000 Jews will be saved almost immediately, and they will have heard the gospel before the rapture occurs, and suddenly they will miss their Christian friends 
who have told them about the rapture, and they'll identify it, know what has happened. And they will be, these 144,000 will be marked as evangelists during the tribulation period. Eventually, they will be martyred. That is an, sort of an overview of God's plan. We who are church-age believers are in Christ. That is what uniquely sets apart church-age believers. And in him we have, present tense, we have redemption through his blood that is also identified more precisely as the forgiveness of sin. Both redemption, as we saw, and forgiveness have to do with canceling something through the payment of a price. And so we realize in our present life, our possession, that we're redeemed. The sin in positionally is canceled in Christ. That's grace. And it is according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So that wisdom and prudence isn't wisdom and prudence on the part of God, as we saw. It's in relation to his revelation to us, which is what the verse goes on to say. And it describes the manner in which this was this wisdom and prudence or discretion is made known to us. Uh, it's a uh, participle of manner or means by making known to us the mystery of his will. So this word translated making known is a word that often speaks of revelation, the disclosure of information to us by God uh, through the Holy Spirit, through the writers of Scripture. It is an objective, not a subjective revelation, as I talked about some last time. And in this case, it is talking about information that has now being revealed to church-age believers, but was not revealed in the Old Testament. That's why it is called a mystery, not in the sense of uh, who done it, discovering uh, who committed a crime, but in the sense of unknown information that has now been revealed uh, to us. And last time I went through this chart, which I've gone through many, many times, to help us think through the source of our knowledge. How do we know something to be true? And historically, there's three basic categories that have been developed in, in human thinking. There's rationalism, which we get our knowledge purely by reason alone. The starting point is our human intellectual ability. There's no revelation at all. We just start with whatever we know, and on the basis of logic, we develop what we believe to be truth. But there are limitations and failures to reason because we're finite. We do not know it all. And so historically, rationalism has always led to failure. Empiricism, historically, in the development of ideas, replaces rationalism. We don't know what we think we know, and therefore rationalism is bankrupt, so we must start with knowledge from what we experience through our senses, what we see, hear, taste, touch, feel. All of these things then become the source of knowledge, and we put it together using logic and reason, that leads to truth. But that's always been bankrupt. We put them together. That's a scientific method. But we can't find meaning and purpose. We can't even settle on how the how things originated. Uh, and so historically what has happened uh, from the ancient Greeks, even preceding the ancient Greeks, from the ancient pagans, Babylonians, and Egyptians, uh, ultimately what they had that was eternal was something related to uh, these various gods, but they're associated with material things, and so ultimately they get trapped in this whole uh, conundrum of, uh, of, of matter, and is that all that there is? And so they have an eternal matter that relates to the uh, matter of the gods and goddesses, and in modern evolution, we have eternal matter that uh, we, that's never explained how it comes into existence. It's just that it explodes, and that develops ultimately into all of the wonderfully complex systems that we observe around us. Well, historically, the, these have all recognized or come to a point where they recognize limitations and failures that they can't answer the ultimate questions. And so that has led to skepticism. We can't know truth. We can't have hope because we just can't figure out where it all came come from. And so that has always in history led to mysticism. Mystery religions were very popular the uh, uh, time period before Jesus and through that period into the early church. 
And it always impacted Christianity. People become confused, and they think that God works through these uh, m- uh, mystical ways of communicating knowledge, and that is always the, the idea of pagan gods is always related to mysticism, not biblical revelation, which is objective and verifiable. And God, in fact, had various tests for prophets so that you couldn't just come along and say, well, this is what God told me, that you had to validate it, that it was verified, that it was authenticated, and if you were lying, then the penalty was death. The only way we come to know ultimate truth is through revelation, the objective revelation of God through the prophets and through the apostles, and it doesn't mean that it is irrational. That applies to mysticism, but we use reason and logic on the basis. On, uh, 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 we, we submit our logic and reason to the revelation of God. It teaches us how to reason and how to think about God's, uh, God's creation. And so as biblicists, what we believe is that we must go to the Scripture to understand the Scripture as our starting point for understanding and answering all the great questions in life. We go to the Bible in order to understand the meaning and purpose of history, the meaning and purpose of the human race, and where that will eventually take us. Now, I also pointed out that a key verse for understanding the content of the mystery specifically that uh, that aspect of revelation that Paul is talking about in verse verse 9 is explained when we get down to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. So he's talking to Gentiles who previously have been excluded from the promises and the covenants of Israel unless they became uh, Jewish to a process of proselytism. But here he is talking about something new in this dispensation. He says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. We're going to spend some time on understanding this word dispensation and its significance today. The dispensation or the administration of the grace of God. And he is speaking of this period now that is subsequent to the resurrection and ascension of the Lord. This is what uh, John is alluding to in John chapter uh, 1, as I spoke earlier, that he is talking about grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. There is an, a level in this dispensation where grace is of a higher order and we understand it more than in any previous dispensation. So it is referred to by some, though, as the church age, but also many others have called this dispensation the dispensation of grace. And we are living on, it's not that there wasn't any grace before, but that there is a distinctiveness to the wealth of God's grace in this dispensation. And then Paul went on to say in verse 3 how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Now, this isn't exclusive to Paul. He's not saying I'm the only one who got it. This was a mistake and an er er error that some early dispensationalists got into. They that Paul is the apostle of grace. Well, so was Peter. So was John. So was James. They were all apostles of grace. There's not something uniquely distinctive about Paul other than he is uh, appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, whereas Peter, as we studied on Thursday night, is an apostle to the, to the Jews. But he makes this revelation to known to Paul specifically, and it also uh, it goes on to say at the end of verse 5, notice, uh, that it has now been revealed by the Spirit to me only. Do you say that? No. See, he says it's been now been revealed to the Spirit, to his holy apostles and prophets. These are the, the vessels of revelation in the early church, New Testament prophets and New Testament uh, apostles. And so all were given this new revelation related to the distinctiveness of this, uh, of this new entity coming into existence called the church, identified in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. See, what we see here is that 
that before the church age, there is this distinction between Jew and Gentile. God uniquely dwells in the tabernacle, then the temple, uh, in the Old Testament. The Jews are uniquely and distinctly God's people. They are the custodians of Revelation. He is saving Gentiles. We have several examples in the Old Testament. You can think of Ruth, the Moabitess, who becomes the great-grandmother of David. You can think of uh, Naaman the Syrian, who is a Gentile. You can think of the Ninevites who responded to the gospel proclamation of Jonah. God was at work saving Gentiles during the Old Testament period. But he is distinctly working through the Jews. That's why when Paul talks about the baptism by the Spirit in Galatians uh, chapter 3, he's talking when he says there's no longer male or female, now, people get all confused over those things today. There are some people who think, well, well, does that mean we've all lost our gender identity? No. It just means that under the law, there were only certain things women could do, and it was men who were priests and men who were high priests and men who served in the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple. Men were the priests, the Levitical priests who served God and serve the nation, but in the church age, being a woman or a man does not impact our fellowship, our intimacy with God, so that we all have immediate access to God because uh, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has torn the veil, opened the way, and we all have immediate access to him. In the same way that there are still males and females, but it's not an issue for their spiritual life, in the uh, in, in terms of your, your economic position or socioeconomic position, then this is not an issue either. You had slaves and they were free, and now it says neither slave nor free. Well, you still had slaves who remained slaves in the Roman Empire. Paul did not go around saying all of you slaves are no longer slaves. Uh, he said there, there were still slaves and they were still free, but it wasn't an issue in, in relationship to their walk with the Lord. And then he says, and neither Jew nor Gentile. There are still those who are ethnic Jews, those who are ethnic Gentiles, yet it doesn't impact their access to God. They are now one in the body of Christ. We'll get into a lot of details on that when we get into chapter 2. And so we come to our verse, verse 10, where it begins that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, we're not going to get through all of that today. This is one of those verses that is absolutely loaded with significant vocabulary and significant uh, phraseology that must be carefully, uh, carefully understood. Uh, the first is this phrase, dispensation as it is translated in the King James Version and the New King James Version. You look at some other translations, they will translate it the administration of the fullness of times. There are others that will uh, translate it the economy. There, there are different ways, or the stewardship, there are different ways in which uh, this term has been handled in modern translations. And not only that, but the the English word dispensation from older translations came to be associated with a specific theological system known as dispensationalism. Now, one thing you should understand is that there's a when you add ISM to dispensational, then it throws it out of the realm of, of, of a biblical term to a theological construct. Uh, that's dispensationalism, and it is in contrast to uh, two or three other systems of theology that are based on different systems of interpretation, and we will get into that. The phrase, the fullness of times, describes the characteristic of this particular dispensation or administration, so we have to identify 
which dispensation or administration this is. And then we see another purpose clause or result clause that he might gather together in one. And that's translated three or four different ways in three or four different translations. So it's important for us to take some time and figure out what that particularly means. And that this gathering together or summing up of all things in Christ refers to a future dispensation and that this is related to the submission of all things to the authority of Christ, all things that are in heaven and are on the earth. So there's a lot to cover here, and there's a lot of confusion over some of these things, and it's sad that we just can just read past some of these things and make a couple of superficial points when this seems to be a major point that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing in terms of a uh, these blessings that he's describing that he introduced back in verse 3 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that relates to who we ha- what we have in Christ and what is being accomplished in Christ in history. So let's just go through a few things. Some of this is review. For many of you, some of this is new for some of you, and uh, I'll throw in a few new things here or there that uh, may help you uh, see what's happening here in in some different ways. So we have this uh, phrase, the dispensation. It's translated different ways in different translations. As I said, sometimes even in one translation, it may be translated different ways, and it is from the Greek word uh, oikonomia. Oikonomia, which has as its basic sense a stewardship, a management, an administration. In a noun form, it refers to the steward or the administrator of a household or a business, a manager, and it has to do with the idea of a plan, that God has a plan, and it implies God has a plan that he's working out in human history, and it is directed towards an ultimate goal, We'll see that that's what comes up in the word uh, pleroma, that this is the dispensation of the fullness of times, or we could translate it even the completion of time, that God is working through each age, each dispensation, a plan that is ultimately going to culminate in all things being brought back under the authority of Christ and all things uh, being redeemed and the defeat and end of sin and and corruption. One way to look at this is that a dispensation or an economia is the managing or administering of the affairs of a household. A steward is someone in charge of administering the affairs of the house. It could be a house in the sense of a household, and you have someone that is hired to take care of all of the business, the management of the finances, overseeing the, the, all of the groceries, the food, make sure all the bills are paid, that sort of thing. Or it can be somebody who's over a small business or over a large business. And this is the person ultimately responsible to making sure that everything is done according to order and being done uh, in a responsible manner. So it brings in all of these ideas related to order, to structure, to responsibility, and to, to managing resources. So all of those are different ideas present in the word oikonomia. So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about dispensations and dispensationalism. And so to begin, I think it's good just to ask the question, what is a dispensation? What does that mean since this word is a little bit of archaic today? It doesn't have the same uh, usage that it once had uh, in, in English. And so when people read this in older translations, they're not sure what it, what it means exactly. So you have these two nouns, two noun forms uh, of the word, oikonomos and oikonomia, and they refer to management. It's um, uh, it's uh, from a word, the management of an office. From it's a word we get. We derive our English word economy. You can hear it, oikonomia, economy. 
which has been brought over into English. And economy is a word that means to manage, to regulate, to administer, or to plan. So we tend to think of economics mostly in terms of money, but when you're talking about the economy of the nation, you're talking about all of the business, all of the things that are produced, all of the goods and services, all of these things, and how they interrelate and how they are organized and how they are, are structured. So there it, we have a government, and part of the responsibility of the government is the oversight of the economy, okay, in terms of uh, all of the frameworks frameworks of law and regulations that allows business uh, business to operate. The word itself, oikonomia or oikonomos, is a combination of two words, oikos and namos. Oikos is the Greek word for house, and namos is the Greek word for law or rule. Now, you think think in terms of stages, and this is going to apply in a quote I have in just a minute, but you think in terms of the stages. Everybody here grew up from infancy. You grew up in a household. You had uh, parents or a parent, and you had different rules in the house as you were as you were uh, developing, as you were aging, so that when you were, let's say, uh, before the age of five or six, you were not allowed to go uh, out, maybe out of the house, certainly not out of the yard, whatever you were doing. There were certain uh, restrictions that, that were on you. There were certain restrictions probably in terms of when you got up in the morning, when you went to bed at night, and various restrictions on your behavior. And that related to you as an, as an infant and as a very young child. But then as you began to grow up, some of those regulations changed. As you started school, perhaps you had to go to bed a little earlier because you had to get up earlier. You had to get plenty of rest. There were regu- different regulations on your food. Different regulations developed as far as where you could go. You could go out of the yard. You could go down the street, but maybe you could not cross certain streets, things of that nature. As you got older and you got a bicycle, then you had a little more freedom and you could go uh, further away from home, uh, things of that nature. But there were still restrictions on you. Uh, I remember I grew up over in Meyerland, and one of the major topographical features there is Bray's Bio. And back when my parents bought that house, that whole subdivision was just being developed. And... Um, what we now know of as South Braisewood was basically about a block and a half long. It didn't even make it to Rice. And my mother would say, okay, you can ride your bike, stay within three or four blocks, but you cannot go down to the bio. Absolute rule, you cannot go down to the bio. To this day, I don't understand why my bicycle, which I had laid down on the ground, she spotted eight blocks away looked down and said, that's Robbie's bicycle down there, and came down there, and then I was really restricted. So we have these ages of house law. Later on, there were no restrictions, and I could go down there, and I think I went from one end of Braisebio to another on my bicycle riding along the concrete. So as you grow through the ages, there are different changes. So that's that's what we mean by a house law. Human history is like that. Even Paul uses the analogy in, in Galatians of someone who is young and who's under a tutor and then someone who becomes an adult so that, that the human race, the history of the human race is described in scripture in an analogy to our, our, our physical, physical growth. So when we look at the word economy, Webster's uh, Dictionary says, Economy is the management of the resources of a community, a country. It's the disposition or regulation of the parts or functions of any organic whole. It's an organized system and the management of household affairs. So that gives us this idea when we talk about God's economy, 
That is a way of describing God's oversight of human history, that human history is not, as Henry Ford said, just one damn thing after another. It is organized by God. We look at it, it seems chaotic, but God has a plan, and he's, he's working out his plan in the process, and he is overseeing and administering the affairs of human history perceived as a household. So as we go through time, we see that there are changes to God's administration, and that indicates changing in what we call dispensations or administrations. Now, the word, uh, uh, well, before I get into this, I want to say something else. When we think about the word dispensation, most of you think in terms of a time. In fact, you'll see in some of the definitions that I have up here that that's how some dispensationalists have started their definition. It is a time within the outworking of God's plan. By stating it that way, they make the time feature the major feature in a dispensation. But the word dispensation means administration or management. Do you hear a temporal aspect to that word at all? No, you don't. The focus is on the way in which that is administered. Let me give you an example. If I talk about the administration of George W. Bush, what comes to your mind? What should come to your mind are the characteristics or attributes of that, of the time when he was president. Time is not absent from it. It's between the presidencies of Bill Clinton and uh, President Obama. It's between that time period, so it clearly has time, but it's a secondary, tertiary element. It's really talking about the characteristics, the qualities, the things that happened uh, during that time under that management of that particular president. So all of these words, oikonomeo, which is a verb, it's used one time meaning to be a steward or to be a manager, oikonomos is used ten times as a noun, in the scripture, and then uh, the other noun form dispensation used uh, several times, three times in Ephesians 1, 10, 3, 2, and 3, 9, and in a parallel in Colossians 1, 25. So this is why the understanding of dispensations and dispensationalism is so significant. All your life, when you've heard any pastor teach on Ephesians, he gets into dispensationalism. This is why is because this word is distinct because it helps us to understand that what is being said in Ephesians is unique and distinct in relation to the church and our identity as church-age believer believers. So dispensations are connected with the mysteries of God. You'll hear some people say the mystery doctrine or the mystery teaching of the church age. That's simply a phrase that means that the information that there would be this period of time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ at the second coming, there's a period in there that is not revealed in the church age. Once we get into the mystery doctrine of the church, then we understand that it ends not with the second coming of Christ, but with the rapture, so that the last seven years of Daniel's 70th week, 70 week prophecy can be fulfilled, but that's in relation to Israel. So it upholds that, that distinction. So there's a certain characteristics of this, uh, this administration. Let me give you a couple of quotes. This is a fun one because we often think of, of, of dispensationalism in contrast to covenant theology and, and Calvinism. But, but believing that there are dispensations is, this isn't the same as being a dispensationalist. And sometimes you will hear certain people uh, really attack dispensationalism, and I can tell you almost any number, it's almost universal, the number of books written by covenant theologians critiquing, uh, critiquing dispensationalism are wrong because they almost to a man misrepresent what dispensationalists teach and believe. Some are worse than others, but most of them misrepresent. I read critiques of dispensationalism all the time, 
And I read them, I say, I don't know anybody who believes that. Or in some other cases, I know a few that believe that, but they are not the representative thinkers, scholars of dispensation. They're pastors who really haven't done their homework. And so they have been guilty of saying things in a wrong way, teaching things in a wrong way, just because of their, their lack of study, lack of education. But this is a quote uh, from Calvin. Calvin says, I reply that God ought not to be considered changeable merely because he accommodated diverse forms to different ages. That part of this quote in and of itself is pretty profound because that's exactly what a lot of covenant theologians will do is say, well, if God does things in different ways, then you're you're saying that God changes all the time. And Calvin states that right up front. That doesn't mean that. He says, as he knew uh, would be expedient for each. In other words, as you go through these different ages, there's different levels of revelation, and so that entails modifications of the way God interacted with men. And he gives two examples, one of a, of a farmer up here and another of a householder. And I'm just going to skip down to the householder. He says, if a householder, because that goes to house law, the meaning of oikonomia, If a householder instructs, rules, and guides his children one way in infancy, another way in youth, and still another in young manhood, we shall not on this account call him fickle and say that he abandons his purpose. Why then do we brand God with the mark of inconstancy because he has, with apt and fitting marks, distinguished a diversity of times? In other words, he says this is a completely fake way of critiquing dis, uh, dispensations. Of course, dispensationalism wasn't around when, when, uh, when, when Calvin wrote. comes from the Latin word dispensatio, which just means to dispense or to weigh something out, to distribute something, so that's why it relates to the word oikonomia. Uh, Webster's Third New International Diction, Dictionary defines it as a divine ordering and administration of worldly affairs. Isn't that interesting? That is their first definition. The first definition is the way in which a word is most often used. I find that fascinating that Webster's focuses on the primary way in which the word dispensation is used has to do with God's administration of worldly affairs. And then he goes on to talk about some of the other aspects, but the third one is a period of history during which a particular divine revelation has predominated in the affairs of mankind. Isn't that interesting? Relates to that. So uh, a dispensation, I make a note here, dispens- as I've already said, a dispensation takes place in t- a time period, but it isn't necessarily related to time. That's not its, its perfect. So basically a dis- dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A distinct and identifiable administration. That means that there are certain characteristics that you can identify that indicate that something serious has changed. As Lewis Berry Chafer would point out, if you're not taking a sacrifice to Jerusalem on Passover, then you understand that things are different now than they were before the cross. That makes you a, an incipient dispensationalist. You understand there are distinctions. So Schofield, here's a picture of C.I. Schofield. He was a uh, Confederate Army veteran, later a lawyer and alcoholic before he was saved. He said, a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. That definition has has influenced almost all definitions since then. He is the author of the notes in the Schofield Reference Bible. It emphasizes the idea of a time. It emphasizes that man is tested during this time, and that testing is on the basis of specific revelation. I think all, all those are something you can see in every one of the dispensations that we we talk about. And he said in a little pamphlet, if you've never read it, it's very good, rightly dividing the word of truth, these periods are marked off in Scripture by some change in God's method of dealing with mankind. Now, he never changes the basis for salvation. It's always by faith through grace. 
okay, or by grace through faith, excuse me. These periods are marked off in Scripture by some change in God's method of dealing with mankind or a portion of mankind in respect of two questions. One is sin and one is man's responsibility. Keeps coming back to the fact that in each of these dispensations, there's a different responsibility. And how do they know what that responsibility is? It's spelled out in Revelation most of the time in a covenant in the, in the Old Testament. Dr. Chafer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and a student of uh, Dr. Schofield, said a period which is identified by its relation to some particular purpose of God. There he brings in the idea that God has a purpose to be accomplished in each one of these, uh, these dispensations. Again, Dr. Ryrie, a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. Brings in the idea it's distinguishable and it's God has purposes in each one. And I'm going to skip this one. That was a definition I wrote that came out in the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. Now, when we look at, I'm going to put a little chart up here. We have ages that are described in Scripture. There's the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. Each of these is broken down into uh, dispensations. There's broad ages, and then there are the dispensations. I'm not going through all of these details, but before there's any Jew, when the call of Abraham, you had three dispensations, perfect environment, God establishes a creation covenant with Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, the prohibition related to the tree. They disobey, and then using uh, Schofield's terminology, you have the dispensation of conscience. I've run across some other terms that people try to use. I'm not happy with any of them, but there's not much revelation at that time, and there's some of these other structures like human government are not in effect yet. That goes from the fall of Adam to the flood of Noah. Everybody recognizes, or most dispensationalists recognize that time frame. They just don't necessarily have the right um, same title. And then a period of human government from the time of the Noahic covenant to the Tower of Babel or the call of Abraham. Uh, that's important because it is through, through the covenant with Noah that human government is established. Then we have the call of Abraham, and that begins the age of Israel where God is going to work through two, I mean, through one specific person, through Israel. And there are two dispensations here. The age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob takes us through the end of Genesis. And then the Mosaic law from Mount Sinai until the coming of Christ. Uh, you have the Messianic age which is when Christ comes, there's new revelation. He is the ultimate revelation of God. It fits all the criteria, and I believe it's a distinct dispensation. I read an article just this last week by a uh, more recent defender of dispensationalism, Chris Cohn, who's the uh, president of Calvary University and has been here. And Chris actually breaks the messianic Age, the age of Christ on the earth into two dispensations in his scheme. So there have been others historically that have uh, seen this as a distinct dispensation. And then we have the current uh, church age followed by the tribulation period, and then everything comes together at the end in the uh, millennial kingdom. There is a progress of revelation. That's what I want you to get out of looking at the chart. A lot of detail in that chart. I didn't have a simplified one. Uh, but there's each dispensation, there's new and increasing revelation. So uh, I think Arnold Fruchtenbaum defined a dispensation as a period, in, a distinguishable period in God's progress of revelation. So you can't separate those ideas. There's always that idea of, of revelation. So then we come to understanding dispensationalism as a theological system which understands that God sovereignly governs the history of the human race through a sequence of divine 
divinely directed administrations marked by distinctive periods of time as he works out his plan to destroy sin and evil. So this is a a good working definition of what dispensationalism is. Now, there's three essentials to dispensationalism. I organize them this way. First, you begin with how do you interpret Scripture? Because everybody or many people say, well, they interpret Scripture literally, but it's a consistent literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. And what you have in covenant theology and other systems is an inconsistency when it comes to prophecy and especially when it comes to Israel. If you, if you are consistent in your literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture, then what you will observe is, number two, a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And then third, something that is not always explained well but is extremely important, and that is that God's overall purpose is his glory. And that relates to the angelic conflict and a number of other things, but this is very important that there is a doxological purpose, that all of this, as we read this, as we go through Ephesians 1, that this is for the glory of God. And this, uh, other systems talk about it, but not in as consistent a way as dispensationalism uh, does. So we hold to a consistent literal interpretation, which means the natural or normal use of language. It's not a wooden use. We believe in figures of speech. We believe in idioms. You can't talk without figures of speech and idioms. But they are understood. Idioms have have their own meaning. They can't just mean anything to anyone. So we uphold the idea of literal interpretation. And the the definition of the golden rule of interpretation is that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicates clearly other, uh, otherwise. So we interpret the scriptures literally. That leads to a distinction between Israel and the church, which is the background for this mystery doctrine of Ephesians that is now the Gentiles and Jews are one in the body of Christ. So there's something something unique happening today. Next time we'll come back, finish this, put this together, because it's all significant in understanding what is this full dispensation of the fullness of times and why must it all be summed up in Christ. So we will get to that uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to see that that history has a purpose. It is your story. You are working things out in uh, your purpose for in each dispensation, and that if we study your word, we can understand these things, and especially the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of the church age today, and based on what you've revealed in Romans 6, the distinctiveness of the spiritual life for each of us as believers in Christ. We're thankful for that which is revealed in Ephesians. Help us to understand these things, that that God the Holy Spirit can use it to transform us into the character, the image of Christ, that you might be glorified. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here today, anyone listening that has never come to grips with their eternal destiny, that has never come to understand how they can be sure that they have eternal life, that the Scripture is very clear. Jesus Christ solved the problem. The problem is our sin, the sin of Adam, and that that penalty of, of spiritual death had to be paid for, and that was done by Christ on the cross. The only way it becomes ours is to believe it, to accept it as ours, to trust in him, And instantly we are uh, saved, we become a new creature in Christ, we are justified, 
and we become a member of God's royal family along with many other things. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to have a great hunger to know all of these things that you have done for us, all these assets you've provided for us, that we may truly live out the best way we can in terms of your revelation and experiencing all of these blessings that you have given to us. And we uh, pray that you would make that clear to anyone who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they can be sure of that salvation right now. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would challenge to press on to spiritual maturity, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.